By November of 1984, a task force of 11 investigating officers was formed to pursue the Sue Clayson real estate agent case out of Cadillac, Michigan. They were also checking into other leads on the Thompson murders, including trying to track down owners of 1959 and 1960 year Chevrolets. They had made requests for latent print comparisons between the Sue Clayson and Thompson murders to rule them out as having been related, and there was still a great deal of time spent on trying to further identify tape that had been found around Richard Thompson's neck and from where it may have originated. This tape would later play a significant role in the investigation for a number of reasons. First, it was a detail that would not be released to the public so that in future if it came up in a confession, it could be used to show that the perpetrator had knowledge of the crime scene that was only known to investigators. Second, it would be used to check against other cases where tape had been used in order to rule out other possible suspects in the area. When I reviewed court documents, I learned a bit more about the tape from the testimony of Dr. Stephen Cole, who did the autopsies. Quote, Exhibit 17 is a photograph of some duct tape that was present. It was wrapped around the neck of Richard Thompson several times. It was fairly tightly adherent to the front of the neck, which happened to also have a large incised wound in it, a large cut but around the back of the neck it was loose. In other words, one could get at least several fingers in it. It was not like this tape had been tightly wrapped around the neck. It was like it might have been wrapped around some other part of the head and slid down. Question. Is it possible that the tape was around the eyes but pulled down? Answer. It is possible, yes. He further described removing it while wearing gloves to keep from smudging any fingerprints it might contain and turning it over to the police for forensic testing. Detective Pratt would go to great lengths to locate the manufacturer of the tape and spent months trying to ascertain whether any local establishment sold it. Eventually, the investigation into the tape proved to be a dead end, but investigators would learn more about it much later. There were many prints taken and checked, everyone from family, friends, people in the area that day, including an entire group of men who had been in the area checking for seismic activity with a company out of Texas, all to no avail. There was nothing to link anyone to the Thompson double homicide scene, not a perpetrator in sight. You know, I'm not sure what happens to a detective when the murders don't stop. And you're the lead detective in the area because of resource allotment. I imagine a lot of delegating has to occur in order to juggle three open homicide cases, along with any other crimes that are happening within your jurisdiction. Crime doesn't stop out of respect for the line of people still waiting for justice. It all just keeps piling up. From all the reports that he has written that I have been able to review, I can see that Detective Pratt has a keen eye for detail. He makes overlapping notes in homicide case files 
that helped the reader better understand what was going on in each case as it related to another. From his local cases that I've researched, he's followed every lead and had every item sent for testing that could possibly have garnered informative results. When years pass, on some of the open cases and technology changed, he sent things in for retesting in the hopes more information could be gleaned. I feel pretty comfortable saying that he is a thorough investigator. But what I'm not so sure about is how you make room for all of that death in your head, in those quiet hours during your off time, and setting aside the very real human tragedy of dead family members and trauma and grief, and the stack of open cases on your desk, if one can set such things aside, how do you deal with all the unanswered questions? I hate unanswered questions. Those are the things that keep me up at night. And what about the cases where you know what probably happened, but it's not within your power to hand justice to a victim's family when there doesn't exist the evidence needed for a prosecutor to make a case that will overcome reasonable doubt? And then we have to consider the nonsense. There is a lot of nonsense that law enforcement is forced to wade through in their quest for the truth. It started out here in Manhattan Beach looking like an isolated incident. Teachers at this prominent Southern California preschool were accused of sexually molesting their young students. 1,400 children in this community have been ritualistically abused. But were they? Do you remember the term satanic panic? All of the signs of self-involvement, rebellion against authority, self-righteousness, disrespect towards parents, they're common in the growing up years. They're also signs of involvement in satanic cults. So I have gone from someone kind of neutral and not knowing what to think about it all to someone who clearly believes ritual abuse is real and that the people who say it isn't are either naive or they're dirty. Uh, I finally decided to tell them. They're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. It's time to share more information with therapists. As World War II ends, they not only get out rocket scientists, but they also get out some Nazi doctors who have been doing mind control research in the death camps. They brought them to the United States. Along with them was a young boy, a teenager, who had been raised in a Hasidic Jewish tradition, a background of Kabbalistic mysticism. And they started doing mind control research for military intelligence in military hospitals in the United States. And the people that came, the Nazi doctors, were Satanists. That's worship of the devil. Now, police have been skeptical when investigating these acts, just as we are in reporting them. But there is no question that something is going on out there. Maybe you think your community is immune to these satanic crimes. Well, it's not. Fueled by unskeptical press reports, the charges mounted on the evening news. Seven nursery school teachers were arraigned today on more than 100 counts of child molestation. The media blitz demonstrated unstinting belief that this had happened. It was sensational and... Becoming more and more bizarre. Some children allege that a living creature was sacrificed on the church's altar. The truth about Satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine and then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true. And this is what 1,200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the Sheriff's Department. It wasn't long before accusations of abuse were being reported at seven other daycare centers in L.A. County alone. Investigators were at the Hickory Preschool in Torrance earlier today. And then, fears spread across the country, eventually targeting scores of daycare centers. 
But the story that initially fed the panic was not all it seemed. In the DA's office, all kinds of doubts developed, particularly about the fact that the mother of the first complaining child was psychotic. But they just kept on going. It was like the Titanic. It was like a roller coaster or a ship that just was out of control and couldn't stop. Emotionally involved parents are engaging in leading and suggestive questioning of the child. Once these cases are contaminated, it's almost impossible to know with any degree of certainty what actually happened. The courts immediately sealed CII's interviews with the McMartin children. But the CII therapists shared demonstration videos like this one with the press and discussed their findings on television. I can't say that I ever saw a videotape where kids said this happened to me never of their own account spontaneously. The therapists unintentionally coerced the children into fabricating stories of abuse. And what about those early claims of satanic abuse? What we're left with at this point is that for five of the seven defendants in the McMartin case, the evidence is so slip that it does not go beyond uh, the mere accusation. years ago, when they were rebel teens in their town, accused of a gruesome satanic murder of three young boys who came to be known as the West Memphis Three after their hometown along the Arkansas-Tennessee border. Three little Cub Scouts hogtied and left in an Arkansas ditch, and three teenagers, enamored with satanic rituals, arrested. Convicted in what many labeled a literal witch hunt, no physical evidence to leak the teens to the crime. But the town was already convinced the three devil-worshipping kids were guilty. There seemed to be a whole scare in the community around a satanic panic. New attorneys forced the state to perform DNA tests not available in 1993 on hair from the victims. None of it is a match to the imprisoned West Memphis Three. And in fact, the DNA points in a different direction. It seems as though there was a decade or two where pretty much every case there was a question as to whether some sort of cult or Satan worship had anything to do with the crimes. This case was no different. On June 6, 1985, a little over a year into the Thompson double homicide investigation, a man named Robert Mattern of the Michigan Department of Social Services contacted police to advise that he may have information regarding the murders. He advised that a doctor at a facility called Pine Rest in Grand Rapids, Michigan, was treating a Manton woman who was allegedly a member of a satanic cult and also had multiple personalities. She had told someone with the Wexford County Community Health Clinic that she knew who killed the Thompsons. According to Mr. Mattern, this woman's husband, who was also being treated through the mental health program, also maintained that his wife knew who killed the Thompsons. The husband maintained that he knew about his wife's cult activity and about a sacrifice house in Manton that he had been aware of as long as five or six years previous, which would have stretched back into the late 1970s. He further alleged that there were three ex-cult members in his church group when he lived in the Manton area. At the time this allegation occurred, the wife was an inpatient being treated at the mental health facility, so the husband was invited to the Cadillac State Police Post for questioning. 
The man had previously worked for an air conditioning company and was also a volunteer fireman with Cedar Creek Township in the Manton area, and at the time, he worked for the Manton Rescue Unit. He told a story of having been married to his wife in 1973, separated about five years later, and during that time there had been a restraining order involved, although the report does not say who took the restraining order out on who. The couple was currently in the on-again portion of their on-again, off-again relationship status. The man claimed that his wife had been brought up in a satanic cult on her mother's side, and the cult revolved around sex. This man also said he had known Richard Thompson since childhood and that Richard was his wife's cousin, but he had never met Alita. He told the police that his wife had become extremely upset by the murders, and it got to a point that she kept insisting some ubiquitous they were after her. He attributed his wife having been put into mental health care this last time due to the effect the Thompson murders had on her. He alleged that his wife had stated that she was present when Richard and Alita had been killed, and although she claimed she did not know who did it, she remembered seeing them killed. The husband said that the cult she was in had the ability to hide their faces. His wife told him that the Thompsons had not been killed where they were found. Rather, they were killed in Paris, Michigan. She believed they were killed because they were going into the missionary field, and this would make them a threat to the cult. The husband told police that there had been a phone call to the Pine Rest Hospital about a plot to kill his wife, or kidnap her, and if she didn't go voluntarily, they would kill him. When the man was asked to describe his wife, he said that she was diagnosed with six personalities. One was very young and cried all the time. Another was a deaf mute in her teens, who was artistic and poetic, but insecure and suicidal. Another was a professional topless dancer and a, quote, streetwalker, with an unsatisfiable sexual appetite. He said that this personality smokes and drinks and was the one who held all the information about the cult. He said another personality was very violent and full of hate toward everyone. He was afraid of that personality. He mentioned another personality as being a three- or four-year-old that liked to pet his mustache. He said simple things made her happy. The sixth personality, he said, was his real wife, who he described as intelligent, highly explicit, very controlled, outgoing, and caring, always there to give a pat on the back. He said his wife dressed in different clothing depending on which personality she was. The husband also talked of receiving telepathic messages. In one, he is driving down the road after dark and a small hole like a bullet hole appears in the windshield of his car. As the hole grows larger, he awakens in a cold sweat. Another vision is of him being chased into an old-style horse barn. When he reaches the loft, the downstairs becomes lit by a bright light. A female figure appears. She's dressed in a white sheet with a hole cut in it for her head. She has very blonde hair that is fluffed out, but he cannot see her face, only the outline of it. She is carrying a shiny black pistol in her left hand and a butcher knife in her right hand. There's blood on her gown, and the only thing he has to protect himself is a buck knife. 
Then the man said that he didn't know any more, but he felt that his wife did and hoped she would tell it. He also suggested the name of a woman named Tammy that he believed his wife had confided in. Now, despite the fact that Detective Pratt very likely knew this was nothing more than the fever dreams of someone in the throes of a mental health crisis, he spoke to Tammy to see what she knew about the situation. Tammy knew the husband because she was the director of the Manton Rescue Unit, where both the husband and wife had worked. She said the husband still worked there. She also knew who Richard and Alita Thompson were, though admittedly did not know them well. She said that she was aware that the woman claimed to have knowledge regarding the Thompson killings, but she personally felt the woman did not. She told Detective Pratt that just prior to her last mental health inpatient commitment, the woman came to her, hysterical, claiming that it was her husband who had killed the Thompsons and that she was afraid of him. From Tammy's perspective, the husband was weird and had come to her home for no reason and talked of someone wanting to kill both him and his wife because they knew too much. After that, Tammy arranged for him to talk to someone at the Wexford County Sheriff's Department. On the date of the scheduled meeting, however, he refused to go alone, so Tammy had to go with him. She said he wouldn't talk or answer any questions directly, so everything asked of him or told by the police to him had to go through her. Essentially, she would sit there and repeat what he said to the police, and then do the same for the information from them to the husband. Tammy said the wife had suffered from mental illness problems for years and that she'd been transferred to the hospital in Cadillac so many times she'd been refused admittance, as nothing was ever found wrong with her. She suggested the woman's issues were psychosomatic. Tammy also mentioned that the husband had given another rescue unit employee some letters that were to be opened in the event that something happened to him. It was subsequently learned that these handwritten letters related to the visions he had already outlined to Detective Pratt. When asked about the claims of cults, Tammy said that she had no knowledge of any such thing, but she wasn't a lifelong resident of Manton. She did say that if there was a cult, she'd probably have heard about it because Manton was a very small town and, quote, everybody knows everybody's business. Tammy told Detective Pratt that she did not feel that either of these people had any true information about the killings. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here regarding this portion of the police report. Mental illness, satanic cults. But what I'm left almost breathless about is the fact that both of these clearly mentally ill individuals were employed by the county rescue unit at some point. Holy hell, really? I feel like maybe there wasn't an appropriate level of vetting going on with the Manton County Services if either of these people were being sent into situations where rescue of another person was involved. It sure sounds to me like this couple needed some rescuing of their own. Anyway, he had to do it. After hearing from the husband and the fellow employee, I can't see how Detective Pratt could have skipped speaking to the woman about whom both of these folks had been questioned so he conferred with the psychologist treating the woman at Pine Rest, who had apparently heard enough himself from the woman that he thought she might need a lawyer. Osceola County Prosecutor James Tulaski was contacted, but he did not believe there had been enough information given, based on his understanding of the crime scene, to warrant a court-appointed attorney. 
but said that if additional information was gained through investigation, he would honor the request. Detective Pratt went back to the treating psychologist, and an agreement was made that he would speak to the woman, but if it appeared that at any time she had any actual information that necessitated an attorney, the interview would cease until an attorney could be provided. Dr. Gary Kaufman of the Behavioral Sciences Division went with Detective Pratt to the inpatient facility, and they interviewed her. The woman told them that her mother and Richard Thompson's mother were sisters, a familial relation that had been suggested in earlier interviews and was likely another reason that Detective Pratt felt it necessary to follow these interviews through to completion rather than completely disregard them. The woman said she had grown up in Manton and knew Richard's wife from family gatherings. She said that Richard was nine years younger than she and her younger sister and that her sister was closer to him than she was. She spoke vaguely about things going on that she did not want her children involved in between her mother, aunts, sisters, and other family members, as well as people from the neighborhood. She was not specific, but she told the detective and the doctor that Richard and Alita had to be aware of what was going on. She said after Richard's father died, it became more intense. There was more fighting within the family for power to determine who was going to run everything. She said this fighting was among her mother, uncles, and aunts. This power to which she was referring was a piece of property that had been earlier mentioned to Detective Pratt as a bone of contention among family members from Richard's father's estate after he passed away. Through his investigation, he found nothing to suggest any family member had any stake strong enough to kill over, although it was looked into thoroughly. The woman's story was that she was present when the Thompsons were killed. She said there were four or five people there, including herself. She could not see their faces. She remembered a mailbox and trees, but no other buildings. She recalled the mailbox because she turned away so she wouldn't have to see what was happening to Richard and Alita and happened to notice it at that time. According to her, Richard and Alita had pulled up in his truck to where the others were. Richard got out and nodded to her, speaking to the others, but when asked what was said, the woman could not recall. She said they shot Richard as he stood just to the left of the truck's driver's side door. Alita screamed and screamed, and she couldn't understand why she didn't run. Then the woman said these unknown people began to cut Alita up into pieces while she continued to scream. She said she didn't die right away. The woman alleged that Alita was pregnant and the fetus was cut out and put into her hands. The woman didn't know what happened to the fetus, but she thinks it was buried. The woman mentioned the fetus was about the same age of a child that she had lost. She said the unknown assailants wanted her to touch Richard and Alita, but she wouldn't. She said there was a gun that she described as a double barrel and the knife was a small sword. She felt that Richard and Alita should have been suspicious when they pulled in and saw no other vehicle, just four or five other people standing there. When Detective Pratt went back over what she had said thus far, she made conflicting statements about where Richard was shot and where Alita was when it occurred, this time inside the car. 
At this point, she said she couldn't understand why Alita didn't lock the door. Then her statement went into how strange the family acted at the funeral, how Alita's family wouldn't let Richard's mother near the rest of the family, and how something wasn't right. She mentioned another family member moving to California and said he had tried to get another family member involved in sexual games and that those games were going on between everyone in the family and that Rick was trying to get away. She discussed the cult and how others in the area, in addition to her family members, were involved. She described the meetings, which usually took place in a big building that was well lit with candles. But she couldn't say where that meeting was, even though she had attended. She said that they would baptize other children with her blood while chanting. In the remarks section after this report, Detective Pratt writes, quote, although there is some information supplied by her coincidental to the case, it is felt that it could have been gained through news reports, papers, radio and TV, or pieces of information put together being released during interviews. It was apparent that she had some deep psychological problems, but the desire to be involved in this case is unexplainable. There was another strange statement given in the Thompson case, this time by a writer who claimed to have visions and dreams of the crime. He was a farmer who'd been sending letters to Detective Pratt about those visions and was eventually interviewed by another detective. He also turned out to be someone with a history of mental illness. In the end, his information was similarly unhelpful. It does bear mentioning that investigators are bound to follow every possible lead until it's clear the lead is a dead end, and this often takes time. But when you have three open homicide cases on your desk, I'm sure it feels as though there are all sorts of other things that you would rather be doing than spending time in mental health facilities talking to people who have their own crosses to bear. On the Thompson case, there was less and less to work with as the days soldiered on. It wouldn't be until March, almost three full years after the murders of the Thompsons, that there was a break in the case. It would come in the form of a phone call to the Cadillac Post, which was then referred to Detective Pratt. A woman said that she had information about the Thompson killings in 1984, and she had gotten it from someone named Peter Piper, who was currently incarcerated in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. According to the woman, Piper had obtained the information from another inmate. When Detective Pratt asked her what she knew about the homicides, she told him it involved a guy and a girl in a blue pickup truck. She said they went down Highway 66, then turned down some back roads near M-115. She said the boy was stabbed once and shot with a shotgun in the side of the head, and again in the head next to the house. She said the girl was shot twice, and the guy was dragged behind the house, and the shells and the tape were picked up when he left. She said this was only part of the information that was in the letter that she had in her possession. Detective Pratt met with her the very next day, but before I get into that, I want to read a paragraph in the report that followed that initial phone call. Quote, 
Peter James Piper is known to the undersigned. He was a prison inmate serving a life sentence for criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, a conviction where the female victim was brutally assaulted. He had been housed at the Lake County Jail in Baldwin, Michigan, under the regime of Sheriff Robert Blevins, served as a trustee having access to walking downtown Baldwin, allegedly driving marked sheriff's patrol cars, and shopping in neighborhood towns. On the evening of December 18, 1983, Piper escaped and was free until being recaptured on November 20, 1985, in Granville, Michigan. I just want to say that that paragraph and his use of the word regime is as good an example as any for why I have a particular affinity for Detective Pratt. In my experience, which includes reading hundreds of pages of reports that he wrote and meeting with him in person, I've learned that he chooses his words carefully and wisely, and in this case it was the perfect word choice. Detective Pratt met with the woman at a home that she owned but her son lived in. She said he was actually the person to whom the letters were sent by Peter Piper. According to her, Piper was a lifetime family friend of theirs. He even called her mom. At this meeting, she provided Detective Pratt with a three-page typewritten letter that was allegedly from Piper, although it was not signed or dated. This letter documented a series of alleged conversations that began on December 3, 1986, and continued through December 7, five days later. Detective Pratt notes that the story in the letter was told as if by a second party, then recorded by Piper. The name of the person telling the events was signified repeatedly in the letter by a set of parentheses with a blank space between them, so that the person's identity was not given. I'm going to stop here and mention that the redacted name would be convenient for only one purpose, and that purpose was that someone would have to get with the person who wrote the letters to learn the name between the parentheses. He could have just written the name in the letter, right? But no. Piper clearly wanted to make sure the law enforcement officer who received the letter would have to come to him to get the rest. That detail, in and of itself, suggests to me that he might want something in return for that information. Detective Pratt notes that the first two paragraphs of the letter were background information on the alleged person giving the information, and the next two paragraphs make up two pages that describe the killings of the male and female near Cadillac. In the report, Detective Pratt notes that the information supplied therein had to have come from someone who had been there because the letter contained information that had not ever been released to anyone but a close circle of investigators and one of those details would be the use of the tape. The letter itself was typed, but on the top of the first page, in handwriting, it read, The people's name is Thompson. The woman did not know how that got on the top of the letter, but in another letter that was supplied to Detective Pratt, dated just a week before he had received a call from the woman, Piper writes, I didn't put it in a letter I typed up, but I was saving it till I talked to them but the guy said the people who was killed, name is Thompson. Multiple letters to the woman's son from Piper were obtained by Detective Pratt. They dated as far back as January of 1997, and they all related back to the typewritten letter in some way. The woman's son said Piper had told him he had information that a contract had been put out on him in the federal prison system where he was currently housed 
and he wanted out of there. The same day that Detective Pratt got the call, he had called the Lake County Sheriff and obtained a set of finger and palm print cards for Peter Piper for comparison against the unidentified prints they had obtained from the crime scene on the Thompson case. Then he contacted Special Agent George Stoll of the ATF unit of the Department of Justice out of Grand Rapids to help assist him in getting information on the unnamed subject, supposedly giving information to Piper about the crimes in the letter. This would require information about who he had been housed with during the dates in the letter when the conversation had allegedly taken place. The subject was fairly quickly identified as a man by the name of Clark, who'd been sentenced to nine years in federal prison in October of 1986 on possession of a sawed-off shotgun and destructive device noted as a bomb. He'd been arrested for these charges back in April of 1986 in Manistee. He had one previous charge for larceny under $100, which was out of Mason County, Michigan, back in 1985. The U.S. Marshal's Office was also contacted to track down Clark's custody record and a set of his prints, so they could also compare those to the Thompson crime scene prints. Next, Detective Pratt contacted the records unit in Lansing, Michigan, to find out why Peter Piper was currently being held in a federal prison, given that he was technically a state inmate. He learned that Piper had been classified as a protection case stemming from the testimony that he had given in a murder case from 1980. Oh, sweet, sweet listener, please give my internal monologue a moment to interject. What dumbass prosecutor, in his or her right mind, would put Peter James Piper on the stand and allow him to testify to anything in a court case that involved someone on trial for murder. The man is utterly incapable of being truthful. Holy shit. That might be a bag that I'll need to unpack on a later date. The notes on his record also said that Piper had been classified as a special problem offender by the Kent County Circuit Judge at the time he was sentenced on the felonies against the prostitutes in 1986. Quote, the defendant is to be given special treatment due to threats on his life. Next, Detective Pratt put in a call to the U.S. Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, to see if Piper would agree to talk. Now, if you've been paying attention, and you think you know what's going on here, it won't surprise you to learn that Peter Piper was eager to speak with them. So it was wheels up for Detective Pratt and Detective Beck, who had been working on the Thompson case along with him, given that he had so much on his plate. While it's obviously not indicative of anything other than convenient scheduling, as far as the detectives were concerned, the fact that they interviewed Peter Piper on April Fool's Day in 1987 conveys a level of comic irony that I don't often get to witness in real life. The ploy that Peter Piper was about to undertake ended with all the cunning of Wiley e. Coyote smashing into the fake tunnel painted by the Roadrunner. In the end, the manipulator overplayed his hand. There are only so many generic TV crime show devices and cliched plots one can use before it becomes clear that nobody's gonna buy what you're selling, sir. But I'll give him this, he had certainly graduated from the feigned headache and unconsciousness of his teens when the Walker police chief questioned him. 
This ploy required multiple layers, copies of typed letters that were sent all around the state, and a black cellmate who he clearly assumed would make a better fall guy than he thought himself to be. Piper told a story about being housed for a week in December of 1986 in a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. He said he was alone in his cell at first, but on his fifth or sixth day, a 57-year-old black male, presumably Clark, was put in with him. In the neighboring cell was a man from Michigan and another man from New York, who was there having been convicted on charges stemming from organized crime. Perhaps this would be a better point in his life to describe his situation as Sheriff Blevins had way back when he escaped prison. A canary flying with eagles. I can absolutely see why, in this case, Peter Piper didn't want to be the canary in question. This is federal prison, son. These boys don't play. Piper spun his yarn about the older man who, after lights out each night, regaled him with stories of bombs and sawed-off shotguns, and it was during a few of these late-night chit-chat sessions that this man told him the information he had typed in the letters that eventually made their way to Detective Pratt via a close family friend. When he was asked how he could remember so many vivid details from the crime that his cellmate had allegedly told him about, he said he refreshed his memory from his own copy of the letter, which he had already provided to the detectives when they arrived. Piper said that his cellmate told him about killing the Thompsons and how it had been a week before they even discovered it. He said the man used a sawed-off shotgun the size of a pistol, and he sold it the next day, cheap, to get rid of it. He also got rid of all the type of shells he had used, and he mentioned that after he shot the girl, he took the tape off of her. This detail was of particular interest to Detective Pratt, given that Alita did not have any tape on her when she was discovered, but Richard did. Piper relayed that the man supposedly told him about bomb-making and how he would pick up guns to make sawed-off shotguns at flea markets. He said the man and his mother attended flea markets throughout Michigan because his mother weaved rugs. And you want to know what else he said of the man that did all this? He said, as he talked about those sawed-off shotguns and bombs, the man acted like he was getting off just talking about them. The detectives asked him how he was able to record the information originally when his cellmate told him the whole story, and Piper said that he had put notes on the back of one of his property receipts. Excellent, they must have thought. Let's have it handed over. Alas, evidence of the notes were not meant to be. It had either been lost, or one of the guards who had moved him from his regular cell to administrative detention, where he was currently held, must have thrown it away. He said that while in transit, the prison system did not allow you to keep personal belongings. Piper said that once he was transferred to Lewisburg, he wrote the information into his diary, which he sent to a girlfriend who lived in Saginaw, Michigan. But before that, he used it to type up the information in a letter. Oh, and his girlfriend just happened to be the daughter of the woman who had originally called Detective Pratt about the letters. And he said she would be more than happy to provide that diary to them. He also said that he had sent copies to his brother. Piper said he last saw the former cellmate who told him all this information in Milan, Michigan, in a federal prison, where they were both taken in December of 1986. Piper was subsequently sent to Lewisburg. 
Now here's where we get to the crux of the matter, where the master manipulator finally gets to the point of this whole charade. The why of the why a guy who murdered two people would draw attention to himself by essentially setting up another inmate for the crimes that he himself had committed. Piper was currently in administrative detention and feared for his life because another federal inmate from Michigan had obtained a newspaper article from the Grand Rapids Press a couple weeks before Detective Pratt was contacted about the letter. This article apparently referenced his 1966 conviction for raping a 17-year-old girl. This inmate then showed this article all around the federal prison system, and apparently they didn't take too kindly to Piper in his rapey ways. He said that a note was written on his cell door, and a kite got passed to the lieutenant of corrections in the facility. Bottom line, Peter Piper wanted out of the federal prison system. He wanted to go back to the Michigan system where, in his words, quote, the feeling towards rapists is not as harsh. During the interview, Piper refused to give a recorded or handwritten statement concerning his knowledge of the Thompson murders because he said if his fellow prisoners learned that he had, he wouldn't be able to go back to his cell. But he said he would talk to anyone. Oh, yeah, he'd talk. And all he wanted in return was to be sent back to Michigan. Oh, and he also wanted his first-degree criminal sexual conduct life sentence reduced. Peter Piper felt that he had already served 19 years and that was more than any other prisoner had served for rape. He conveniently left out the part about how he attempted to murder Mary and left her for dead. But Peter Piper felt that he had been cheated. In fact, he was currently appealing the multiple second-degree felony charges stemming from the prostitute attacks and was due to go back to Kent County for that soon. Over a year would pass from the time that Detective Pratt sat and listened to Peter Piper's ridiculous tale in that prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, to the day that he would learn his final fate. Sometimes, justice rolls to its destination slowly, on tracks seemingly covered in rust and in much need of repair. But that train did finally make it to the station, eventually. And all of his appeals stemming from the attacks on our heroes, Rhonda, Kelly, Loretta, and Sandra, were denied. The Michigan Court of Appeals, they said, no, sir. Not today, Mr. Piper. Not today. And the Thompsons? What about them? Where was their justice? Well, it came, although I imagine some might argue a bit too little, though definitely not too late, given that it put the final nail in the coffin of any dream Peter Piper might have had about ever drawing breath outside of prison walls. On Wednesday, November 30th, 1988, in a courtroom in Reed City, Michigan, the people of the state of Michigan versus Peter Piper slow-chugged to its final destination. Prosecutor James Tulaski, a name you might recall from season two, was arguing for the state against Michael Matthews on behalf of the defendant, but there was no arguing on this day. All parties had spent considerable time hammering out a deal 
that would effectively put Peter Piper in jail for life with no possibility of ever getting out. When they all convened in the courtroom that day, Peter Piper was looking at two counts of first-degree murder and there were other assorted charges, including an escape charge, conspiracy to escape, and a weapons charge, also hanging over him in the wings. That day was about a plea deal that would settle the matter once and for all when the defendant agreed to accept a second-degree murder charge against Alita Thompson. The sentencing bargain included a cap on the minimum sentence of 25 years and a cap on the maximum sentence being 40 years. The prosecution also agreed to weigh the habitual offender status, and it was agreed upon by all parties that Piper would be required to, quote, provide the officers with a full and complete and honest detailed statement as to what exactly happened for the benefit of the family and the deceased. Essentially, the police wanted to debrief Piper, which suggests to me that they might not have known all the elements of the crime that they wished to know. It also speaks to one of the news articles that said the police never learned a motive in the case. I could tell you the motive, but it wouldn't necessarily be based on facts. It would be based on what I know about Peter Piper and a little common sense. I believe that Alita Thompson was Piper's target all along. The tape and the weapon were brought to gain control of her husband, so he could do to her exactly what he had done to Mary and Rhonda and Kelly and Loretta and Sandra. There is nothing in his criminal history that suggests his motives are anything to the contrary. You'll hear his ridiculous version in a minute, but I want you to hear mine first, because I think he's full of shit, so he gets to speak last. Peter Piper planned to rape Alita Thompson, and then probably assault and murder both of the witnesses before he fled the property. You see, the stakes were much higher now. With Mary, he was just a kid. With the prostitutes, he figured nobody would even care about them. But with the Thompsons, he wouldn't be able to leave anyone around who could ID him. He wouldn't be able to leave anyone around who could give a physical description of a guy who clearly looked a whole lot like a prison escapee. I think he had Richard taped up somewhere on that property and was about to rape Alita, as evidenced by one of her arms being pulled out of her shirt and vest. But then something went wrong. Or maybe something went right. Richard got out of his restraints. And that's when Peter Piper lost control of the situation. Maybe that was the only something right that happened that day. Richard Thompson, in the end, was able to spare his wife the final indignity of being raped before she was killed. You know it's what you do when you're thinking nobody's looking no one's looking where you gotta love a lot whether you want to or you're just dreaming you're just dreaming first you hide then you see oh and you're lonely week to week oh will you ever learn to shine 
that this manipulative con somehow changed his M.O. He lured that couple there. To Piper, all they were was prey. questioned Piper about whether he understood the agreement, including the fact that the sentence would be consecutive to any sentences he was already serving, including the life sentence in Mary's case. Do you understand that? Judge Root asked. You mean the sentence will start after I get off the life sentence? Peter asked. The judge responded, whatever sentences you are currently serving or have facing you yet, this will be on top of those. It would start after they end. Do you understand that? Yes, Piper said. It appears that all parties involved wish to avoid a trial and complete the process as quickly as possible, though it sure does seem like a sweet deal for murdering two people while having escaped from jail, only getting a single charge for second-degree murder on one. Effectively, though, it would amount to a life sentence because it sat atop another life sentence for which the defendant would never be eligible for parole. Is it your own free and voluntary choice to plead guilty? Judge Root asked. Yes, Peter Piper responded. Before I can accept your plea of guilty, I must be satisfied that you are guilty. To do that, I'm going to ask you some questions under oath. Raise your right hand and be sworn by the clerk. The judge swore him in, and then he continued. We're specifically talking about the murder of a person a female named Alita Marie Stephens Thompson on or about May 3rd, 1984. Did you come in contact with that female subject? Yes, Piper said. I met them at a Kmart store in Cadillac and I left my car there and I got into their truck and we drove out to 115 and then down 115 and some dirt roads. I told them I wanted them to clean my house and I... We, we found, 
Uh, I seen a house that looked abandoned, so we pulled into the driveway, and I had him pull back past the house a little ways and park. When we got out, I pulled out a gun. There followed a few questions about the type of gun, which was a 16-gauge shotgun, and then Piper continued. I, I told them I wanted their truck and that nothing would happen, so the guy said okay, and he said if I wanted some money, he didn't have none. I told him no, I, I didn't want no money. So I had some tape in my pocket. I put some around his eyes from behind him. Then I taped his hands behind him. Take your time, the judge interjects, presumably because Piper is pulling one of his fits of emotion. And I presume this because the transcript notes that his lawyer says, it's all right. I can picture his lawyer rubbing the murderer's back soothingly. Then, then I turn around and I started to tape the girl, but I don't know, he must have broke the tape on his hands or something. He jumped on my back and he had a knife or something. I don't know. And we struggled. He was... He was bigger than me. He got cut, but I'm not sure where all. Then he jumped up and he grabbed the gun and he, he started to run. I chased him. When we got up by the house, I, I jumped on his back. We started fighting again. And the gun went off. And I don't know, it just went off a couple more times. I'm not sure how many times. After the struggle, did you get possession of the shotgun again? The judge asked. Yes, yeah, he, he, he just laid there. So I don't know, it was, it was like I was in shock or something. I got a hold of his ankles, and I got the gun under my arm, and I started dragging him to the back of the house. When I got back behind the house, I, I don't know, this girl, she just came out of nowhere. She jumped on me, and I don't, she was really strong, it seemed like. And we struggled again, and she was screaming all kind of things. I can't even remember. And the gun went off again and again and again and again, and I don't know, I don't... They, they both just laid there. Okay, 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 Piper's lawyer said. I... I tried to wake him up, but they wouldn't wake up. I, I just sat there for hours and hours and hours. I, I, I didn't know what to do. There was a bit more wrangling with the judge about the plea deal because... Piper had essentially offered a narrative that gave the facts of a first-degree felony murder, and a bit of lawyerly dancing was required to ask him specific questions, which would technically allow the judge to agree to the second-degree sentence. To read it, though, four pages of back and forth that makes it breathtakingly clear that the guy did way more than he was being charged for, and all that fandango was being done to get it tidied up quickly and legally so they could bring to an end the whole tawdry affair. Near the end, the judge said this, I will note for the record that the court has, while not perhaps been a direct participant in the plea negotiations, was at least present in the room and indicated that the court would go along with the agreement that was reached. Although I was not directly a party to these negotiations, I was informed what it would be and said that since the consecutive sentencing would effectively result in, for all practical purposes, a life sentence, the court was satisfied. To partake of a dated Seinfeld reference, the whole scene smacked of a yada 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 of epic 
and profoundly sad proportions. But it is what it is, and Peter Piper went back to jail, where he resides to this day. Barring any future escapes, that is where he will draw his final breath. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next season.